0: Hi, I'm Dr. Robin Koslowitz, clinical psychologist, parenting educator, and post-traumatic parent. Welcome to the Post-Traumatic Parenting Podcast, where we learn to provide our children with a healthy childhood, even if ours was anything but. Or maybe we had a wonderful childhood, but recent events in our lives have left us reeling. Let's face it, after 2020, we're all post-traumatic parents now. Welcome! Welcome! When thinking over my interview with Dana Abraham, I have so many thoughts. Dana is someone who is the true post traumatic parent who has been through her own instinctual process of the AIM model. She's accepted what has happened to her. She has used that information to say, These are my values. This is the type of parent I want to be. She's no longer trying to undo her past. She's not doing a lot of ignoring discomfort, trying very hard to have counterfactual thinking, pretending that her childhood wasn't challenging and difficult. She's not pretending that parenting her son wasn't challenging at the beginning. She's truly accepted everything, including the moments she remembers as shameful or painful. She's integrated that into her functioning into her sense of self into the classes she's giving she's looked at it unflinchingly and she's moving forward and finally she's made a mission out of it teaching other parents of neurodiverse kids how to parent them the whole book i enjoyed reading it so much because calm the chaos the book that she wrote is so neurologically and neurodevelopmentally informed there's not a lot of text on the page There's a lot of like her hand-drawn illustrations, explaining processes. She simplifies everything and doesn't do a lot of information dumping. Instead, she gives some, some clear, practical ideas of what to do as a parent. For myself, as someone with PTSD, I was struck by the similarities and the overlap between ADHD and PTSD and the way both can really interfere with our executive functioning, the way both can really interfere with our sense of time passing, And our ability to sort of stay on top of the chaos and feel as though we can manage and we can focus on the right things without constantly playing whack-a-mole. And I drew a lot of inspiration from Dana because like her, I am someone who is grappling with both internal distractions for writing my book, right? PTSD really does interfere with our time sense and our ability to get things done. And I am also someone who has those external factors impacting my ability to write the book. I have kids. I have patients. I have a life, right? And I was so inspired by the way Dana made that process work. She didn't whitewash it and make it sound like it was just like the easiest thing. And you just like wake up and you do it and you stick to your goal. There was none of that fake life coach-esque type of like, just do it, you know, philosophy. There was like, yeah, it was hard. Here's what worked for me. So I personally found recording this episode extremely valuable for myself, and I also found it very validating. And I think for many post-traumatic parents who are feeling stuck in the chaos, listening to this episode will feel the same way, both valuable and validating. Can't wait to hear what you think about it. As always, please join us on Instagram, DM me, comment. Let me know what you thought of the episode. If you have other questions for Dana for post-traumatic parenting, let us know. We can certainly have another conversation. Thank you so much. Enjoy the episode. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Post-Traumatic Parenting Podcast. Today, I have a guest that a lot of you were anticipating. I have Dana Abraham on. She's the best-selling author of The Super Kids Activity Guide to Conquering Every Day and Sensory Processing 101. She's on a mission to create a more accepting world, one challenging kid at a time. Her latest book, which I have read a pre-publication copy of and adore, is Calm the Chaos, a fail-proof roadmap for parenting even the most challenging kids. It's going to be released in August, so really soon. And I have to tell you, this book is going on our essentials reading list because I loved it. Dana is a national board-certified educator, a parent of three neurodivergent children, and an ADHD adult herself. Dana brings a unique and out-of-the-box perspective to parents raising kids in the modern world. She's the founder of the popular parenting website Lemon Lion Adventures, which has accumulated more than 41 million views in less than seven years. Calm the Chaos is a book that I feel like a lot of post-traumatic parents are going to want to read because one thing that we haven't talked about enough is... When you're a post-traumatic parent and you're also raising a neurodiverse child, because I feel like that can be a trauma in and of itself. And I think that's the thing we really need to talk about. So welcome, Dana. So glad to have you here. I am so honored to be here. Thank you. I really want to ask you, we like email back and forth and, you know, I feel like our work is so simpatico. One of the Mm -hmm. things that I talk about when I talk about raising neurodiverse kids, the metaphor I use, I call it parenting Peter Rabbit. If you know the Peter Rabbit books, right? And there's there's like Mrs. Rabbit and she's raising Flopsy Mopsy and Cottontail. And of course, this was written in like, I don't know, the 1800s or the early 1900s. So they're the good little bunnies and they, you know, Mrs. Rabbit tells them to stitch on their samplers and they sit there and obediently stitch on their samplers. And then she has Peter and Peter is the, of course, trigger word here, naughty little bunny. And Peter, you know, keeps going into Mr. McGregor's garden. And I remember the first time with one of my kids sitting at a school play and, you know, all the Flopsy Mopsy and Cottontails are like nicely singing their little hearts out on the chair. And my kid is on the chair, under the chair, over the chair, holding the chair over his head, making faces at the audience. And I'm thinking, I am parenting Peter Rabbit, right? Mm-hmm. And all and it really helped me when I thought, I think that night I was looking at a Peter Rabbit book and I was thinking, oh my gosh, I'm parenting Peter Rabbit. And all the parents of Flopsy Mopsy and Cottontail are looking at me judgmentally and I'm thinking like, no, eventually, this took me many years to get to, right? And you think you said this also, that for the first seven years of parenting, you felt like a failure, Absolutely. Right? <laughs> like you've been gifted a Flopsy Mopsy and Cottontail. This says nothing about your parenting skills. <laughs> <laughs> no, it doesn't. And I've had
1: all three, you know, Flopsy Mopsy, Cottontail, and I guess Peter Rabbit. Like I've, I have three children and all three are so unique and so different. And my other two are quote unquote easy, I guess, you know, if that's the the right wording. And so, but my, my oldest, I mean, he, he really found every hole and every like angle, be like, wait, you think you've got this figured out? Watch this, you know, and he really gave me a run for my money. And I have learned so much about myself and about humanity by raising him. And so I'm actually really, really, really appreciative of the journey we've been on. But um, it has definitely not been a simple journey. That's for sure.
0: Yeah. Do you agree with me that it can be a trauma, like raising a neurodiverse kid? I think there's a part, I want to be really clear here. So one,
1: I don't think, I think sometimes when we think of trauma, we can think of that someone did something to us, right? And so I want to be really clear that I don't think that raising a neurodivergent child, that they are causing trauma for us or that we are somehow a victim in this story. And I don't think that trauma is that. I just am saying like, I want to be really clear in where where I stand on this part. But I do believe, right, like there is a lot of trauma that happens. My son has educational trauma. I have trauma from the things that have happened. I was always on high alert, right? Like I had to always have my phone on and all the alerts on. I keep my phone on silent. I keep all the notifications off now because I can and because it is it's triggering to get a phone call from school. It's triggering to see that someone's calling. And during that time, you're on such high alert. Your nervous system is just like not feeling safe at all. And then if you're dealing with a child who's struggling with aggressive meltdowns, if you're struggling with a child who's yelling, I hate you, you're the worst. If you're dealing with a child who's telling you, I hate myself, I just wish I could fit in. I mean, all of that is traumatic for everyone who's going through it. And the more that we can realize, one, we are not going through this alone, and we can find that support system super early, I think the less trauma that there can be that comes out of it, right? And so I would say, yes, I have a lot of of post-traumatic, you know, experiences from this. And there's a lot of research that shows that, like, brain scans of parents raising neurodivergent children have the same brain scans, PTSD brain scans as someone who's been in the war. And so there is a lot there if you don't have that support system, if you don't have someone to help you make sense of the journey, and if you don't have a way out of what I say is like the unsustainable chaos.
0: Yes, I totally agree. I think that this is why it's a little scary to say I'm feeling Mm -hmm. traumatized, right? Because we're not saying I'm not grateful for my kid. I don't value my kid. I don't love my kid. In fact, I love my kids so fiercely. That watching person after person after person reject them, hurt them, criticize Mm -hmm. them, criticize, and then myself, I love myself as a human who deserves to exist in this world, being shamed, blamed, alone with a challenge that feels too big, that part's traumatic. The kid themselves Mm -hmm. isn't. And you're right. It's scary to say that because we never want to say like, you know, that we're in some ways, you know, loving our kid less, but the experience around the kid, right? Yeah. And and just the way, you know, like we had DCFS show up at our
1: house four times. That's a traumatic event. Oh, yeah. DCFS, taking your kids down to the DCFS office and having them take your kids at the time, I believe they were like nine, seven and two. And taking them into other rooms and having them pull up their shirts and having them. like. There's obviously going to be some ripple effects there. And some remnants left over when you have to go through an experience like that, when you have to call the police on your child, when there are, you know, your child has climbed to a f- the top of a tree 40 feet in the air and you've had to call fire department to get a bucket truck to get them down. Like that is all extremely traumatic. And right. and so having the tools to get through that with with your relationship intact, with your uh, stability, you know, and and finding that calmness after the storm is so important.
0: Yeah, it is. It's And it's one of those things where when you're when you are not parenting a peter rabbit, you really feel like you don't know what it's like. Like, you don't know what that feeling of that hyper vigilance of like any minute now I'm going to get a call from the school and my heart rate's going to shoot up to four million. Right. You don't you just don't understand that experience and then you get those people with their like brilliant advice you know like i always say just as a four-letter word like why don't you just tell him that if he climbs the tree you're not taking him to the park anymore like gee i never thought of that oh my god you're brilliant (laughs) right like really yeah yeah (laughs) yeah. thinking of sugar you know whatever an interesting one i
1: i say that i tried everything from my educational background that i believed in and that aligned with my core values and then i tried everything that didn't And that in itself, you know, was really hard for me. It was really hard for him. It broke a lot of connection. And so we had to rebuild that. And so there is a lot of like rebuilding and making sense of things as you're trying to navigate this, especially with all the advice.
0: Yeah. And sometimes it's true that even when we're picking an approach, because let's say we have a child who's very challenging and we're hiring someone to help us with that child. It's hard because our parenting behaviors and values get called into question. I was mm-hmm. working with a post-traumatic parent who was working with a parenting teacher who was a very strict behavioral approach for her kids. And it was beyond, like, you do things exactly as I say. Like, if I say give the kid oranges for breakfast, you don't give him apples, kind of. Like, that's what the, how the woman, you know, was teaching. And I don't think she had any major credentials other than having been a like elementary school teacher. Like, I don't think she – I looked at her website. I didn't see any professional credentials and the trauma for this mom because this was so not consistent with her values. Mm-hmm. So even if that approach may have worked for some kids and this woman had many testimonials on her website, it was traumatic for this mother to parent in a way that she had resolved to never parent because maybe that's how she was parented and it it was so painful for her to ignore her own values. I mean I I see that so often where the voices of other people get
1: into our heads and it makes it really hard and I find that um especially parents who are you know dealing with post traumatic trauma and they are going and sometimes they don't even know they are and they are going into parenting a child all of that comes forward when we have to respond react you know and and say something to our kids yesterday i was on with some coaching clients and i was like all right so we're going to talk about overcoming fears they are like, I don't have any, some of my people were like, I don't have any fears about the real world. It's like, yeah, you do. You 100% do because you're here because you're struggling with your relationship with your child. And so that means that at the root of it, there is something when your child doesn't listen to you, when your child doesn't follow directions, when your child talks back to you, when your child runs into the street, this old story, these old beliefs, this old trauma is coming up and going, wow. Ah. Like, you know, here's this thing that you haven't dealt with yet, and it's coming out with your child. And so it was like, how can we kind of address some of this so that when we need to make plans with our kids, when we need to solve problems with our kids, we are coming from as fresh of a start as we can without some of that head stuff that's going on.
0: Yeah. Do you feel like Was there some of that self-doubt in you from your childhood when you were were going through those seven years of feeling like a failure? I mean, there was everything
1: when I was going through all of that. I mean, when I was growing, so I was raised in um, a couple of different scenarios here. So I was raised in a very Italian family and I was told that just, you know, Italians, we we yell, that's what we do. And so I was raised in a very uh, yelling family and that was just again, I was told that's just what we do. I also, my mom is the youngest of three kids in a family that was really trying to fit into society where we lived um, because they had a very big business. It was world known. Everybody kind of knew this business. And so my mom was trying, she was kind of like the one that didn't fit and she was trying to fit in and she had her own trauma. And so then when, you know, we were, she was raising me, it was all about getting me to fit in. It was putting me in ballet. It was putting me in, you know, in modeling classes. It was putting me in etiquette classes. It was taking me to cotillion. It was putting me in all these things that put me in this little box, private school, all the stuff. And my mom and I were just so different. And we had such a volatile relationship. I mean, when people would come to visit and we would be in the same room, we could clear room really quickly because yeah. of our volatility and just how how awful we could be to each other. It um,
0: sounds like your mom was giving you a gift that she wanted. Like she needed that as a child. She wished she had oh. had the piano, ballet, cotillion stuff so she could fit into this society, but that's not what you needed. It's like what her inner child She had all needed. of that. She did have all that,
1: but she she wanted me to still fit that mold and and she wasn't getting that with my older brother who's adopted. She wasn't getting that really with my younger brother. And so she really felt like with me, I was the one that was going to be her shining star. And so out front, she would put me on, she would almost parade me around yeah. and she would put me on display and look what Dana did and look what happened and look at all of this. And so even to this day, I really struggle with the accolades. Like I really struggle with, um, like, I'm a very driven person but I don't do it so that people will be like, oh, way to go. Like, yeah. let's gain an award. I don't, like, that's really difficult for me because she would do that. But then behind the scenes, she's like, you need to lose five pounds. You need to get better grades. And I'd have like a B. Like when I was right. in second grade, I turned my B into an A with a purple crayon. That's how afraid I was of making mistakes at such a young age. And yeah. so- that played into it, and then add on the fact that I was a sibling of a bipolar brother, and so he was extremely explosive. So I had to learn at a very, very young age. And honestly, for being super vulnerable, my mom's you know second husband was abusive, and you know, they say you're not supposed to remember things from before a certain age, but I remember things. And when I look at the timeline, now that I'm an adult, I was six months old. I was a year, year and a half. And I can remember the slammed doors. I can remember the holes in the wall. I can remember my mom getting slammed against walls and, you know, I'm getting like chills thinking about it. It just singed this place in my brain. I could, you know, I remember it so well. And so you have that, and then you have my sibling relationships, and then you have that I didn't quite fit into my family, even though I was doing all the right things. And so right. then when I become you know, a parent, yeah, all that's flooding back, all that. And then when I'm trying things that I vehemently disagree with, the spanking or the the timeouts or the isolation, because I can remember so many times that I was put in my room for timeout because I just spoke my mind, even though I wasn't trying to be disrespectful or the times that I would get spankings for things my brother did because I was so emotional that I didn't want them to get spanked in front of me. So I would be like, I did it. And I'd get those spankings. And so having to then try to repeat that with my child, just brought up all those memories and yeah. all those feelings. And then it just sent me down a spiral. So yeah, absolutely. You're just battling all the things, you know, you're yeah. battling the current day and you're battling all the stuff from your past that you
0: didn't even realize was a thing. Yeah. It's so confusing, you know, especially when we first become parents, because we don't even realize that some of that stuff is like pre-installed. If you know that um, cartoon with like the two fish in the, in the water and then the guy outside of the aquarium says like, how's the water? And one fish says to the other, what the heck is water? You know, this is like naming the water, you know, like this is water, like yelling at kids, spanking them, you know, forcing them into a mold, which is very consistent with the prevailing trends of raising neurodivergent kids. Right. Molding them had to have been very triggering for you because your mom just needed the shiny mini me to make her abuse worth it. And you weren't that. You were a great kid, but you weren't the shiny mini me, the doll, the like, you were the girl. So like you were like that girl to dress up and parade around and like just wasn't you.
1: And I don't know if this is just audio or if they can see pictures. I mean, right now I have some makeup on and I have my hair, you know, it's curled a little bit, but you Mm -hmm. know, it's it's getting dyed tomorrow, a new dye again, and it'll be blue and purple and pink. And But growing up, I mean, my room was black. Like I was the 15-year-old that painted my room black and I wore black and brown. And that's all I did. And and I did love ballet. I loved dance because it was an outlet for me, but I didn't like the feminine part of it. And I definitely didn't like the effect it had on my body image as I right. grew up, you know, and I'm i work so hard now with my daughter to make sure I even said to my husband the other day, I feel really good. She's 10. You know, and I feel like I don't see body image with, like, I don't see her struggling. I don't see her worrying about what she's wearing. I don't see her worrying if the outfit looks funny on her, isn't the right style. Like, I feel like she just wears what's comfortable, what fits her sensory preferences and what she thinks is fun. And outside of that, like, she doesn't really think about it. And by 10, I definitely already was
0: really struggling. All in the ballet world, especially. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I did that. I really wanted to take martial arts as a kid, but I took ballet because that's what girls did. And you know what? In adulthood, I took martial arts and I got my black belt. And that was important to me. I felt joy in movement in martial arts in a way that I didn't in ballet. Ballet just didn't spark any joy. All it did was spark insecurity. It's a lot of. For me. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's, you know? it's definitely there. And my favorite was like, the the good news is that I got to do modern and I got to do jazz. And I yeah. liked all of those because they they got me out of my comfort zone. But they were was still like that feminine side of ballet was not why I was drawn to it. It yeah. was more of, it was my family, right? Like I had a group of people. I didn't feel like I fit in even at school. I didn't feel like I fit in in a lot of places, but in ballet, we had this one commonality. And so yeah. that That did make it a little
0: easier to feel like I had a place when I was growing up. I feel the same like my 12-year-old daughter. She's had her years of doing ballet. She's had her years of doing martial arts. She's had her years of doing gymnastics. She likes them all equally. And she doesn't seem to have any complex about... The competitive aspect, or you know how she looks in the mirror, or it's like, yeah, ballet is fitting into my life right now, and I'm liking the classes, so I'll go, and this year I want to do gymnastics, and this year, I don't want to take any extracurriculars and this year I want to do self defense again. It's like, okay, yeah, then do those things, and it just isn't this big thing that way it was for me. It's just like, okay, today I'm interested in this, yeah, like, okay. I want to go back to something you said just a little bit ago. You said
1: that it's so ingrained in us, and we don't even know um and talking about the fish and the water. And I think that that's kind of the driving force behind one of my pet peeves is parents are told that parenting is instinctual and that, you know, parents have been parenting since the dawn of time. And so why would we need education on this? Or why would we need a parenting book? or why No one can tell you how to parent your child. You're their parent. And I think that there's truth to that. I think that every parent is the expert in their own child or can be. Uh, the Mm -hmm. expert in their own child. We have our own hard-won knowledge. We have our own experiences, our own background. And we've been with our child the most outside of maybe their teacher. And so we do have a lot of information. However, there are many of us who are bringing things from our past, who are bringing models, who are bringing experiences that we need help navigating as we start to parent our children so that we're not parenting out of fear, so that we're not parenting out of control. We're not parenting out of what we didn't get and or what we got, and we want to do the opposite. And so I think that it's important to empower parents, but I think it's also important for parents to have the best practices, the science, people like you guiding them and saying, these are things we know now about the brain. These are things we know now about child development and neurodiversity and relationships and communication. And this is how we can raise resilient children without having to
0: push our own agenda on them. I love that. I feel like one of the hallmarks of of healing, and I feel like you've come to this, is when you know what's an instinct and what's a trigger. And they're very, very different. You can hear the voice of your instinct saying like, nope, this is too much pressure for my kid. This is not going to work. And you can know the voice of your of your trigger saying like, I'm going to be judged or shamed or parent blamed if I don't, you know, enroll my kid in this or do this after it's not right away. But eventually yeah. we hear the voice of our trauma app and we hear the voice of our instinct as two very distinct voices. But it takes
1: time. yeah, I think um, one person described this really well one time, and she she actually is a good friend of mine, and she coaches women on listening to their instinct. And one of the things she said is, like, it's not always an audible voice or anything like that, but what it is is your instinct, your like that knowing, that inner knowing, is not it's not mean, it's not mm-hmm. hurtful. Right. Yes. If it's coming up and it's mean and it's hurtful, that is that trauma speaking. That is those ingrained beliefs in you. That is someone else speaking through you because you've been told this or you have this fear of something. But if it's, you know, or sometimes it could be ego speak, you know, like there's those sorts of things that can be speaking, but your inner voice is not mean. And I think that that is like such clear distinction. Like, yeah, but my instinct is telling me that I should be a better parent and that, you know I should be stricter. And I'm like, that's not instinct. It's not, like, that's, that's not instinct. Yeah.
0: The key word there is should. Your yeah, inner should. voice doesn't speak in shoulds and musts and have tos, Very right? Your inner voice. Simple. right? It's
1: so, so that's something I found is it's like, it's one liners. They're like, it's like, it's a one line. It's a yes. It's a no. It's a mm. Like that, yeah, Like I was, I was recording a podcast with my husband the other day and he told this joke and it was kind of like outdated. And so then I was like, I, maybe we should cut this joke. Like, I, I don't know. It doesn't feel right to me. And I was just like that, like icky feeling in my stomach and in my chest, that's yeah. instinct, right? Like that's your like, hmm. yeah. Watch
0: yeah. out, <laughs> yeah, that's your I call that with little kids. I call that your little oh voice, you know what from Gavin yeah. d Becker's like personal safety seminars, right this idea that there is a little oh voice in your stomach that will tell you like that's not resonating with me. that's confusing. Yeah. I need to vet that with an adult or whatever because yeah. that's you, right The other stuff you know the voice of fear, the voice of you know the voice of self judgment and self doubt that's trauma, yeah. But it takes yeah. time. It really does take time oh. for us to like tune into those voices and to know yeah. when you're I wanted to ask you a question about something specific in the book. Okay. I really loved the segment about no more storm chasing because I felt like that was so true to life when you're parenting a neurodiverse or like what we call a psychodiverse kid, right? Where you're playing whack-a-mole and problem, 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 and you're not like proactive, you're not thinking about what your values are. Tell me more about how you came up with that and like what the takeaway is. Yeah. So the big
1: thing, you know, in the book, I talk about how we've discovered these four elements that no matter what problem you're addressing, what challenge you're facing, that these four elements are key to kind of approaching any situation that you're in, whether it's with your children, your spouse, your best friend, it doesn't matter, your parents. And so Those are the four pieces are you, which is yourself, connection, understanding, and empowerment. And you need a trickle of those no matter what you're dealing with. And one of the things is after realizing that you needed all of those, you don't just need connection. You don't just need to be mindful. You don't just need to understand. Like you don't just need to set up rules and limits. Like it is this conglomerate of things And it's almost becomes this menu that you can choose from based on what you know about your kids and where you're at and your journey. And so what we realized is for ages, we were teaching just those four pieces of the framework and we were getting a lot of success with our students. People were able to go from 52 occurrences of hitting at school to one every six months you know and we were having kids who would refuse school and they'd go to school half the days and then they became you know so able to advocate for their own needs and wants that you know they were able to advocate for Flexi school and so they were able to do home and school but be really successful at both. and so we saw a lot of really cool things happening but we realized that there were people who were still getting stuck, who were kind of, I feel like spinning their wheels is the best way to describe it, and, or doing that parenting whack-a-mole where like every single month or week or day, there's a new focus. It's like, today, my kid is hitting. Today, my kid is is running. Today, my kid yelled at me. Today, my, my daughter did this. And when you're constantly looking at every single thing going on, you never make forward progress on anything. And I know that you are a fellow book writer and it would be like if we were trying to write 10 books at the same time, Yeah, we would never make forward progress on any of it. And same with like, okay, fine, I'm going to choose one book. So let's say you choose one kid, you're still not able to work on all the chapters at one time. You have to work on it one focus at a time. And so what we realized is there was this need for a roadmap how to use this framework when you're at your absolute worst, when things are really challenging, not just with your kid, but also with you. So if you're in that place of, of alarm, you're in that place of you know getting triggered really easily. If you're in that place of having no time and energy, you're not going to be able to show up for your kid in a way that you want to. And so you need a plan for riding out the storm. You yeah. then need a plan for getting your time and energy back. I always tell people, we all have these little boxes that we carry around with us called phones. And every night, the majority of us plug it in. And the reason for that is because we would never start our day with a dead battery in our phone. And yet we start day after day after day as parents, especially post traumatic parents, with no battery in our body. Yeah. And so you have to have a plan for how do I refill my own battery without taking bubble baths, without getting a day away from our kids? Because let's be honest, we don't get that, especially at the beginning. And then you can start working on a plan for in the heat of the moment that doesn't make things worse, that doesn't make things bigger. You're just getting in there, you're diffusing the bomb, and then you're reconnecting after. So that brings us to a head of the moment because once you've created that foundation and you've created these really great skill sets for yourself, your children can start to trust you as a safe. Your children can start to to believe that you're gonna be there for them, that they can make mistakes and it's gonna be okay. And so now when you start doing these ahead of the moment strategies, which is where I found most of the parenting strategy started was let's get ahead of things, right? But you need that foundation first. And this ahead of the moment, Plan really came with, okay, how can we look at this from a bigger picture? What is the UQ for? And UQ is that framework piece, right? You connect, understand, and power. So what is that four-step plan when we're getting ahead of electronics battles? When we're getting ahead of the fight to get out the door, when we're getting ahead of siblings fighting, right? Because in the heat of the moment is not the moment to talk it's not the moment to problem solve. It's not the moment to teach. And so everyone is like, okay, if that's not the moment, when do you do it? Well, you do it ahead of the moment. And that's what this is. And so the you piece is about like honing in on just one focus. We call it a chaos father. and really finding what is the one thing that if you can make forward progress on this,
0: everything else is going to get better. I love it because there's two things I was thinking. First of all, as, you know, as a clinical psychologist, we know that when we're attuned, like during a time of play, during a time of connection, that's when our brains are open to learning from each other. That's when our mirror neurons are working with each other, not against each other, right? And that's definitely not when the bus is honking outside, right? It has to be ahead of the moment because that's a time of connection where you you can have a playtime and you can play a game about time management and then talk about let's come up with a time management plan for the morning, right? Mm -hmm. That's when our brains learn. Every parent tries to teach during the crisis. It never, ever, ever works. I found myself doing it sometimes and then thinking like, you know more about neuroscience than this. We all do.
1: I mean, my daughter last night, my daughter really struggles with um, anxiety and with sensory like overwhelm. And so school's been really difficult for her this year. And I'm really proud of her. She's advocated like so well, and she'll say my body hurts today, or, you know, I my brain is going 90 to nothing. I'm having a hard time thinking today. Like she's able to really describe what's going on. And so it's the last week of school and today's the last day. And she wasn't planning on going, but she really wanted to go and take presents to them. And we've decided we're going to homeschool next year. And so it's kind of like a end of an era, right? Like I want to go take presents to my teachers, but at the same time, I don't want to admit that it's the end of school. So she was Mm -hmm. really struggling last night. So she's crying and she's like having all of these things. And then she's also wanting to figure out how we can go to, it was 830 at night. And she's like, can we go to Target to buy these gifts? And can we take them tomorrow? You know, when you, in between all your appointments tomorrow and your (laughs) meeting, I was like, oh my gosh. And nothing we said was working. And I was like, okay, we are not solving this tonight. I am here to support you. I am here to ride it out with you. I am here to love on you and help you feel better. And we're gonna get a good night's sleep and in the morning, we're gonna solve this. We go woke up this morning and nudged her. I was like, hey buddy, it's seven. Like if you're wanting to solve this, we might wanna get up and figure out a plan. She woke right up. We went to right. you know Target at 8 a.m. She was able to like, if they didn't have the thing she wanted, she was okay and able to be flexible. Whereas if we had gone to Target last night and they didn't have that cereal candle she saw a year ago, she would yeah. have flipped her lid. Whereas today she goes, oh, they had those a year ago. They didn't, they're they not going to have them today. And so then she was super flexible on what she got the teachers. And we went into the school. She said her goodbye. She was able to tell them, I think I'm going to homeschool next year. No tears, no any Like she was super regulated. And that was because right.
0: we worked on it when it was not a stressful situation. Right. You figured out a time of attunement and you did it then. So yeah. neuroscience informed. The other thing I wanted to say was so interesting in your book and what you said before about, you know, the kid when you're playing whack-a-mole, when the kid is like hitting and then the next day it's he's cursing and the next day he's yelling at you, Honestly speaking, that's a very good progression of skill, right? Like for a clinical <laughs> psychologist, if you can go from sublimating your desire to hit to cursing to then yelling and saying, I hate you, are the meanest mom in the world. Wow. Look what we went. We went from I aggressive even impulse. said that on purpose that way. Right. But like, it's like exactly what <laughs> we're looking for. And then the parent is playing whack-a-mole because it's not, if we're focusing on hitting, we're going to use words to solve problems, not fists or whatever like term we're going to use, Right. So we're going to, you know, we're going to use words to solve problems. We're going to use words to solve problems. Cursing is using words to solve problems. It may yes. be objectionable words that you'd like eventually <laughs> to like, you know, expand out yeah. of, but it's, it's using words to solve problems. Yeah. You actually yeah. had success, not failure. So yeah. I love that idea. Like, let's focus on that one thing. And then the kid gets communicating success. You know, yesterday you hit me when you were frustrated in the morning. Today you cursed at me. This is progress. Yeah.
1: We are constantly looking at progress, not perfection around here. I mean, and you have to when you're dealing with and, you know, I don't know if I ever said this, but that word challenging can be really triggering as well Mm -hmm. when I call kids challenging. And so I just really quickly want to say, I believe that our kids are challenging because they are challenging us to do better, think better, try new things. I don't think kids are, I don't see challenging as a bad thing. We go on challenges. Everybody does it at the beginning in January every year, right? People do challenge thirty uh, day challenges to eat better or to work out. So in every other aspect of life, challenges are a good thing. Except for when they come from our children, then they're triggering. And so if we can reframe the challenge as not something that triggers us, but instead as something that pushes us to see things differently, to learn something about ourselves, to learn something about our kids, and we can stay curious, makes a big difference. So I just wanted to like, come back to that. I know it was like, yeah. off topic, but so yeah, when we are raising these kids that are challenging, that push us, that are hard, that, you know, that do things that we are not expecting or that we don't understand If we focus just on when the meltdowns go away, we will never see progress. Or if we focus on the bad days and our brain works in omissions and deletions and in generalizations. And so if we're only focused on the thing that causes us pain, we're going to miss all those nuances of today he yelled at me and didn't hit me.
0: Yes. And that's a huge difference that we really have to focus on. Yes. I had a kid in a... I was doing parenting, um, I was doing post-traumatic parenting with a mom and her kid was in therapy with one of my associates and we had like a joint session and the kid looked at the mom and she said something so true. She said, you're focusing on the time that I actually got really mad and hit my brother. You didn't focus on the two hours before when he was being annoying and annoying, and annoying and I didn't hit him. I didn't hit him more than I did hit him. Yes. And it was the way she said it was so cute, right? you know, like she like made it into a fraction, you know, like,
1: and that's one of the things that I talk about in this ahead of the moment phase is so often, especially in like a very more like more behavior approach way, people are looking at what comes right before what comes right after a behavior. And it's no, 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 there were two hours of enduring this stress, this overwhelm, this frustration, this picking on. And finally, I just lost it, but it didn't come out of nowhere. Here's all the things that led up to it. And so that's part of that ahead of the moment plan is spiraling it out. I kind of say like a cinnamon roll um, is kind of spiraling it out and unrolling. What are all the things, including your eye contact and your eyebrows and your jaw being clenched and your shoulders being raised and like small things that you may not even realize you're doing for my son. It was my groggy voice in the morning and he thought I was mad at him. And because of all of his trauma from school and all the things that had happened in the school system, if someone was mad, he immediately would spout back off at them. And so he just assumed, it was like a self-protection And so if he assumed I was mad just because of a groggy voice, I would get a reaction out of him. So by doing this spiral, I was able to learn, oh, it's just my, okay, I need to say, hey, buddy, I'm really sick today, or I'm really tired today. My voice is a little groggy. So if you notice it, just know it's not about you. And that would diffuse the situation far before we ever got to that frustrating situation.
0: Yeah. I had that with one of my kids found my professional voice to be triggering so Mm -hmm. if i was like recording a whole bunch of classes i used to like have to like watch something funny and like just like sort of cleanse my palate like to get out of the lecture at that (laughs) point i was teaching a college class so it was very much a lecture voice and i had to do something i hear myself going into it right now like i'm cueing myself into it and i had to do something to be like wait that's not mommy voice right mommy voice is a whole different voice You know, sometimes it was reading a picture book to him, like coming up and going straight into reading a picture book because my picture book reading voice is very different than my college professor lecturing voice. And that worked. But yeah, when that triggers about, you know, for him is about me. Right. It's he is Mm -hmm. noticing that there's a certain distance and association between me and the world that he doesn't Mm -hmm. like. So going back to behavior, because since we were talking about it. And you're right about, you know, I feel like the very strict behavioral approaches, right? Everything is the immediate antecedent, right? They're not necessarily thinking about antecedent after antecedent after antecedent. What does that do, right? Like there's trigger after trigger after trigger after trigger. Eventually, you know, that those triggers are going to make you explode. It's like that famous example of holding up a cup of water. How heavy is it? Well, it's how long you're holding it for, right? if you're holding that trigger for a long time, I think in the trauma-informed world, we know this, right? Repeated triggers are going to cause a lash out, right? In the behavior world, it's like, you know, what happened immediately before. We also, of course, in the strict behavioral world, there's not a lot of attention paid to thoughts. There's not a lot of attention paid to reactions, to ideation, to if-then thinking, right? I think now, you know, they they talk about private behavior, which would be thinking. I mean, they've gotten, you know, it, I guess, has expanded. That definition has expanded. But you're right that it doesn't really necessarily reflect the reality of lived experience, let's say with siblings or mm-hmm. coming home from a stressful day at school where it like the cup keeps filling up with stress and filling up with stress and filling up with stress absolutely absolutely
1: um and so the ahead of the moment is like also looking at and finding a tipping point of where does it hit a point where. There is no return, meaning that no matter what interact like intervention you do, no matter how calm you are, no matter how much you, you know, say, well, I noticed this. Let's try this. No matter how much like you try to be proactive, they've hit a point that they're not going to be, you know, they've spiraled too far at this point. They're rolling down the hill. And the only thing that's going to stop them is to hit a wall. And so. Finding that tipping point is where you place that ahead of the moment plan is, okay, so you earlier talked about the bus, when the bus is honking outside, a lot of people will place their ahead of the moment plan that they've created ahead of the moment, but they'll still place the plan when we walk out the door. When the plan and the stress is probably starting when the kid wakes up, right, or after breakfast or something way earlier, it may even be the night before, where that's where we can get ahead of this instead of waiting until, oh, it's time to put our shoes on. And then right. it just our kids are so far gone that it doesn't matter what good visual we have. It doesn't matter what calming strategy we have. It's not going to work because they're not receptive at that
0: point. And we're sometimes not receptive at that point. For sure. Just curious because going with this whole behavior thing, what's your position on rewards? Do you think there's ever a place for them? I know for me, I'm not a fan of punishment or reverse of consequences. I don't like punishment or reverse of consequences in my own life. I don't like getting a speeding ticket, you know? I don't like getting, you know, negative feedback from someone if I'm late with something. But I know like I do use rewards for myself, meaning that. For example, I always say I'm writing my book in 10 minutes. I literally, because I have PTSD and sitting still for long periods of time, really doesn't work for how my brain functions. I write for 10 minutes. I take a break. I write for 10 minutes. I take a break. It's my it's my method. Sometimes I write for 10 minutes, then I voice note to myself for 10 minutes because I can voice note for 10 minutes, but I can't type for 20. So for me, I use that kind of reward method where now you can take a break. What do you feel about that with kids? I feel like that is a little different
1: than a reward system, right? You go to school, you get a sticker. You go to school, you get a sticker. And when we fill up this sticker chart, we're going to the grocery store and we're going to pick out your favorite ice cream. I feel like that's very different and it's top down, not kid related. Like the kid didn't create it. The reason this is working is because... You're creating it, and you have realized how your brain works, and you've created a system that works for you. I also wrote my book in pomodoros and wrote them in in chunks, and I had a checklist. and Every time I would check something off, it was like, ah, right, it just feels so great. I feel like I did it, I did it, and I would even like take my chapter and be like, okay, I wrote my story, I wrote the science, I wrote the instructions, I wrote, and I would check off each little piece. But it was different then. There was no amount of outside reward that could have gotten me to write that book. Like there was no amount of my husband being like, "Well, if you write this, then you're gonna get this," you know. Here's that was, yeah, yeah. Like now, I rewarded myself when I hit big milestones. So you know, we would go out and we would celebrate a dinner. I would celebrate a mile with dinner, or a, you know, a, a fancy drink, and I would do that as a celebration of we hit this huge milestone i turned in the manuscript or we got the book deal or whatever that big milestone was but that was going to happen whenever that milestone got hit not necessarily if i did it in a certain amount of time and so with kids i really think that it's important to teach them how their brain works i think it's important to teach them what motivates them what excites them what calms them so that they can say okay They get, you can help them create plans of, yeah, when you finish your homework, then we'll have so much extra time for this. So an example of that is my son, he loves electronics and he would be on them all day if he could be. And we have a morning routine. This is my 17 year old autistic ADHD, sensory processing disorder, DMDD, ODD, you name it. He's been diagnosed it, right? All the alphabet soups. Yeah, all of it, all of it. And so this is the kid who, you know, I, I talk a lot about in the book, the one at, at seven that was kicked out of school. So this kid, you know, we had to create a morning routine that worked for him. And it was what is important to get done so that you can be successful? Well, you need a shower. That's just a thing that he needs. One, he needs the proprioceptive input of the water. It actually calms him. If he doesn't take a shower, yeah. especially when he was younger, he would be off the whole rest of the day. You gotta have be dressed because you can't go to school in underwear, and so that was one thing that had to happen. And you had to take, he had to take meds. Those were the three things that had to happen. Now I know a lot of people are like, yeah, doesn't he have to brush his teeth? And doesn't he have to, you know, eat breakfast? And doesn't he have to clean up his room? And does and like honestly, no, those no. were not important at the point at that time. Those three things were important, and if it took him, he always. Had time to do his electronics afterwards, but he also knew that the school started at this certain time. And so, if he got all his things done in three minutes, then he had an hour and a half to do his electronics. If it took an hour and 20 minutes, he had 10 minutes
0: to do his electronics. And to him, he created that like with there was consent. consent. That's what yeah. I feel is the missing piece for a lot of behavior, so to speak, plans. If there's consent, then the child has ownership of what they're trying to do. I did yeah. something so similar with my daughter. I also think there's just slippery slopes with
1: rewards. I think yeah. there's a lot, especially when you're talking about neurodivergent people, you're talking about rewarding kids for fitting into that mold, fitting into that right. box. Like if I rewarded my daughter for going to school, she would be hiding and masking the fact that she's yes. in and I I think we have to be really careful as people who guide other parents who aren't going to do the deep work and aren't going to know the difference between the things. I think we have to be really careful when we're advising on rewards. So yes, I, I think,
0: I think that it depends on if, first of all, if the goal of the reward is about shaping behavior to make like mom's life easier, then that's a problem, right? Because then you're molding them, right? You're trying to fit them into that box. When the goal of the reward comes from the child, because I did something so similar with my daughter where she's her time management is not great, especially in the morning. And at that point, she was super into martial arts. So I said to her, you wake up in the morning at this time. Let's pretend your minutes are like ninjas. The minutes are trying to escape from this prison and they're ninjas. So they're really good at escaping. The more minutes that you keep in that prison, you have for what you want. So you decide you could get dressed in 10 minutes, you could get dressed in an hour. If you get dressed in 10 minutes, you have 50 minutes to do whatever you want because you kept the ninjas in prison and they're your ninjas and then you could do whatever you want with them. And like because ninjas was like her thing that year that like resonated with her. She wanted to do that. It also was she didn't like missing the bus. She didn't. I had no problem driving her to school. But she liked the bus. So it bothered her, it triggered her, and it ruined her day if she missed the bus. Because she had friends on the bus. She enjoyed the bus. She liked the morning lineup routine in her school. So it was about her. But yeah, she could get, like me, she could get lost in a but book. And so you know, to me, I think that
1: that is, I think that's a system. I think that's
0: less of a reward. It'd be yeah. different
1: if you're like, you know, each morning that you get ready on time and don't miss the bus, we're going to put a penny in the jar. Right. That's a reward system. That is a like, you know, like at my daughter's school, if you came to school every day, you got money towards a pizza party. And if you missed a day, you didn't have enough money for your pizza party. So when it came time for the class pizza party, you had to go to another class because you missed a day. My daughter broke her arm and had surgery this year and had massive anxiety over going to school, but yet turned in all her work, was the sweetest kid in class. And you're telling me she's not going to watch a movie because you have a pizza reward system, right? Like right. the that's where I think it's different. I think what you're talking about is is motivation and visualization and breaking things down and helping kids actualize and concrete, you know, make the information concrete that is so like abstract for them, especially if they're neurodivergent and they have time blindness and any of those things, right? right. So I think that that's where I think we can just remove the word reward because it is that like, what's motivating you? Oh, you want to get on the bus? Okay, great. How can we solve that? What's causing you to not get on the bus? And then actually diving under and say, oh, you don't like the clothes we have out in the morning. Okay. I wonder if we could try them at night or, you know, oh, you're forgetting what you need to get done. Okay. I wonder if we could do a, a schedule or The ninja, like, okay, what if if we think of the time like ninjas and you're keeping your ninjas in their cage? She's like, that, that works for me.
0: Yeah, (laughs) right. Like, nope, ninjas, I can't open a book because I I think I'm going to read a page. I'm going to end up reading the whole book and then it will be 10 o'clock and I still will not have gotten on the bus that came at eight. So, right? Like, so when she says that, like. I get to boss my ninjas around. She feels super empowered. And there's this yeah. consent. I'm teaching her how to hack her brain. Like this is your brain. Yeah. This is what I it think does. That's,
1: I think that is very different than what most people think of in when they think of reward charts, reward systems. I, right. I, I just think that that's so I So I think it is important to teach our kids that we can hack our brain, that we can motivate ourselves, that we can. I like knitting. I haven't knit in years. And one of the things that... I'm realizing is I need to pick projects that knit up really fast because the reward is having the product at the end, right? I'm in the middle of one and it is like taking forever. And I am so ready to just go on to the next project. And I'm like, no, but I want this purse at the end. I want this purse at the end. Yeah. But if you go do that bucket purse, then you're going to have a purse in a day. Look how fast people are knitting that thing up. Right. So there is a part of me that that's an intrinsic, like I want, yes, there's something external, but it's driven
0: by me, like you said. It's right, it's driving me. It. It. It's me sticking to something that I want to stick to because I yes. value it. Right. There's yes. there's a reason. We don't yeah. always have to value like Nobel Prize worthy endeavors. Sometimes it's like I value myself. I value cooking myself a delicious meal yeah. for lunch. You know, yeah. it doesn't always have to be huge and humongous. I think that one of the things that's so inspirational for me, like to speak with you, is like. I am at that beginning of that book journey, right? Like where the book's out on sub, So like we have the sample chapter, the proposal, which is like the, probably the worst part of writing a nonfiction book. Is done. <laughs> the proposal took over yeah. like two years for me. I mean, it the was. Puzzles. Oh, my gosh. No one understands this. Like this is not even in the book. Like these are the pages that are simply a business plan for the <laughs> book. Yeah. And no one ever sees it. <laughs> yeah, and no one ever sees it except like an agent and some editors. And. <laughs> I think for me also, I think the actual writing of the book is somewhat joyful because this is like what I want to say. And I have a social media community that wants this book out there. For me, the hardest part was the Sudoku of figuring out what goes in which chapter that broke my brain. How does a person with ADHD who's balancing that with parenting and this whole social media platform and website, how did you balance that? I think for a friend.
1: (laughs) <laughs> oh, my gosh. there was there was a lot. I had to, like you said earlier, hack my brain. So I had to come up with rituals that worked for me. And what I found is I needed a time chunk and block things off. So there were certain parts of my day that nobody could talk to me in my business. And, you know, I delegated as much as I possibly could. I have like team members that are amazing, and they help me run my company. And I had to just release trust and control. It was a whole lot of me working on. I trust you. I release this. Here you go. Um, Because otherwise they would keep coming to me and I wouldn't have been able to write the book. And so then I had to create these like, okay, I've got this time now. Then what do I need? Okay. I need to listen to some music and I need to get clear on what I'm doing today. Okay. Here's my plan. All right. So then I'm going to go in and I'm going to work on that plan. And each chapter, it kept getting clearer how I was going to work when I got stuck and so it was really important for me to have a coach along the side. It was really important mm-hmm. for me to have someone that I could talk to each week and be like, this is where I'm at, this is where I'm stuck. Um, it was really important for me to have someone I could dialogue with. Like when I got to the chapter about ditching rules, I was like, oh gosh, I gotta process this with someone yes. so that I don't like say the wrong thing here. So there was a lot of like inner stuff that had to happen, but it was just that like one small step at a time, one small step at a time. And Really just honing in on what system is working for me and do more of what's working and less of what's not. And every time I found something that just wasn't working, I'm like, all right, that is no longer part of this process. So now I'm going to go back to this process.
0: So Um, for post-traumatic parents who are listening to this, I just want to point this out. A lot of post-traumatic parents are like nature's entrepreneurs because trauma makes us think outside the box. And a Mm -hmm. lot of the post-traumatic parents, at least in the post-traumatic parenting community, are at the very beginning of that process. What Mm -hmm. I'm hearing is you had a team, and you built up that team over time, and then you built up the ability to trust that team over time, which Mm -hmm. is something that if you're just starting out and you're starting a business, you don't have that team yet. So the fact that you have to, like, interrupt – something that you're doing to like go change a diaper and then get back to like that and then like you're you know playing whack-a-mole with your schedule because that's what it's like at the beginning when you don't when yeah. you don't yet have the resources for a team so normal right it and is so normal okay. and we actually i don't know if you know this but
1: we have a program where we help parents who've lost themselves in parenthood and then rediscover themselves. And they're at that beginning journey of like, what do I want to do? What is my goal? And we've helped people get published. We've helped people go back into the medical field. We've helped people. Um, One woman today just posted that she's starting a robotics club and she got the yes from the school that she's going to get to do the robotics club. So we do teach them, what do you do when you don't have a team? What do you do when your partner's not helping you with your kids? And you're raising a neurodivergent child and you're probably neurodivergent yourself or you have your post traumatic whatever you know you're dealing right. with and you're struggling with that time management and so it is those little tiny chunks it's putting it on the calendar and saying okay my 30 minutes a week at the beginning that might be all it is is i'm going to do 30 minutes a week or you know when i started my blog i was raising i had a newborn i had a kid that had just been kicked out of school and then i had a kid who was like why am i being homeschooled you know yeah. so i had three kids And we were homeschooling and I started the blog. And so even though I was exhausted, right after I put the kids to bed, I would spend 30 minutes doing something to work on the book. And that's how I built this business. was in little 30-minute chunks. My last book, I wrote in Starbucks in 10-minute increments, 20-minute increments. And so if that's all you have, then just make sure that you are protecting
0: that five minutes, that 10 minutes. And then that time grows. Yes. And that process, I think also knowing yourself, knowing your neurology, knowing your process. For me, That's I remember so when I had that conversation with my husband where I had like writing time scheduled and he came in and, he's, and I was on the treadmill and he's like, I thought you said you were writing now. I'm like, this is writing. Like, yes. transitioning into my writing mindset by first running on the treadmill is how I get like my creative juices flowing. I get myself focused. I get myself energized. I get into this like writing flow mindset. Then I go write. This is writing the book. It just happens, and there were days.
1: There were days that writing the book didn't have any words get on the paper. Yes, just like you're saying, where writing the book was just me researching, or writing the book was me just resting. And I had to overcome this idea that I'm lazy, or I'm making excuses, or I'm putting it off because that is what I was told my whole life is your you're lazy or you're just procrastinating again, or you're not putting you're all into it. And I had this writing coach who was like, you know, your editors don't care that you're sick. And I was like, yeah, but you're going to get like really crap work if you make me work while I'm sick, right. you know? And so I was pushing against that like authority figure almost of being like, don't you tell me what to do. Yeah. <laughs> and so I had to figure that out. And I had to realize that it was okay to have days where I did nothing in that writing time, but I still protected that writing time for whatever I did need.
0: Yeah. And sometimes it means I had that. I remember with academic writing where sometimes I did write a couple of really bad drafts of things that never ended up out there in the world, but they sometimes there was just a sentence in there that sparked Mm -hmm. something that ended up huge. You know, so... You can't always like, it's not like we're not making widgets, you know, it's not an assembly line where it's just like wrap the candy, wrap the candy, wrap the candy, like that Lucy episode, you know, Mm -hmm. we're doing something creative. Sometimes the words aren't there, but sometimes the pre-words are there and that's what we're going to get to. It's not always that productivity of like when you're in elementary school and it's like, do your handwriting exercise, hand in your handwriting exercise, do your math minute, hand in your math minute. It doesn't work that way. (laughs) No,
1: no, it doesn't. And I think we can apply a lot of this to even parenting and figuring out these ahead of the moment plans is that it is those tiny tweaks. I always liken it to uh, going to the orthodontist and getting braces. You don't go and get braces and the next day you have these beautiful straight pearly whites. You have to keep going for sometimes years and keep getting these adjustments and these tweaks and these small changes. And that's what we have to allow ourselves, even when we're making plans and when we're applying strategies with our kids, because otherwise we try one thing and then we throw it out the next day. And we try another thing and we throw it out the next day. And I think we just have to trust ourselves that we're going to trust the process. We're going to trust ourselves. We're going to trust the community we've surrounded ourselves with. And we're going to say, okay, not it all didn't work, but what about this did work? What did I like? What did I not like? And then why did I like it? And why did I not like it? And when you can really start digging into those questions, now you can start making informed decisions about what you're keeping and what you're not keeping, whether you're going on a, you know, you're trying to reach a goal of your own or you're trying to help your kids.
0: Yeah. The whole mark of healing is curiosity. Like, Again, the opposite of curiosity is shame. And sometimes mm-hmm. we feel so much shame. We don't want to ask ourselves those questions. You're like, why am I not a morning person? Like, why am I just not good at writing at this hour? Like, what, like, and okay, if that's the case, rather than you're lazy, you're unmotivated, you're this, you're that, it's like, hmm, you know what? My brain's not set up for that without some transition in. Okay, what's the transition in? Right? Yeah. That to me is like, okay, we're on that healing path. And it, you're right, it's the same thing with our kids. When we're just like, I'm the worst parent in the world, we're not gonna be, hmm, I'm curious why the right after school period is just so difficult every single night. Like, let me look for some data to figure that out. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. I just even said that to my team this morning. I was on my schedule every week leading up to the book launch. It's like, Dana, go live. And we're three weeks into this like runway. And I'm like, I'm I'm not going live. And they're like, oh, you're not going live because there's no time on your schedule. Or it's not booked in. Or it's this or it's that. And I'm like, nah, there's got to be something else there. So today, I finally am like, why am I not going live? I wonder if it's because I am afraid that nobody's going to see it. Mm, Okay. Or it's not going to make a difference. Now, let me dig into why I believe that. And then once I figure that out, now I can figure out how to get go live. So once you get curious like that and you can start having it show up everywhere, it's just pretty cool what can be, what
0: you can do. Yeah, it's kind of like courting rejection. You're like that rejection therapy. Like I'm going to email these people to ask them to be on my podcast. And if they say no, I get a rejection and like, yay. And I'm going to and that is where you use that kind of a reward. I buy ice cream if I get pen rejections, you know, just that idea that I'm flipping the script on it. Like this is great. I did this once in a therapy group where the kids were intensely competitive and, and it was like it was the worst thing. Whoever won the game, it became this huge fight. And it was like even a game where it's like all luck, like shoots and ladders became a war. And I remember saying, OK, so here's the deal. The person who wins the game gets a, yay, yeah, you won. The person who loses the game gets a lollipop. I just wanted to see what would happen. And it flipped the script entirely. Suddenly it was like, no fear, I got the really good ladder that goes all the way to the top. Oh, no. And it was like, guys, you see how nothing changed other than how you're thinking about it? you see how it, and then in the end, of course, everybody got lollipops. It was just a thought experiment. Do you see yeah. how it's only what we think about it that matters? The lollipop didn't change. The yeah. winner and the loser of the game didn't change. Nothing changed other than your thought process about it. And they were like, <laughs> oh. And then the teacher told me, like, that group of kids who were, like, the most competitive kids that, like, in her classroom, it was so hard because, like, everything was a competition. If she called on one kid, they'd be like, why do you call on me? And she, they were just like really high octane kids in our class. like, suddenly that whole thing sort of went away. Like it wasn't this big deal anymore. And sometimes it is about that skill of the reframe of like, oh. That reframe is so
1: powerful. I mean, that's that's why that you piece is in everything we do because that reframe is just so incredibly powerful. Because if you go into the situation and you feel like there's no hope, or you feel like you can't do it or that your kid is never going to get better or whatever that is, right? Then you're going to get more of what you're thinking. And so that reframe is just so, so powerful.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Dana. I could probably talk to you forever because I feel like we have so many things in common and there's just so much. And I absolutely loved the book and I cannot wait for it to be out. I really want to do like a giveaway of the book when it's out because I think that so many post-traumatic parents this is the book they need to read. This is what they need to learn, especially when post-traumatic and parenting a neurodiverse child at the same time, I think that's like the hardest thing, even as a great book to have your partner who isn't perhaps dialed into this plan read so that they can understand the logic behind the approach you're trying to implement with your kids. I think this is super important and because it's because of your artwork and the way the book is so like written in small nuggets that are approachable, right? There's Mm -hmm. not like, Huge blocks of text on the page, right? Yeah, all really that was purposeful.
1: Uh, that's because, you know, this ADHD girl here, I didn't read a book until I was a senior in high school, in college, Sorry. And so to write a 356 page book, (laughs) I was like, this needs to be accessible. Because one thing that I know is we all as parents, especially as neurodivergent parents, we open up a book and we have all the great intentions to read it. But if it's a wall of text, our just eyes glaze over and then we feel that shame that you just said of, "I, I buy all these books and I can't read them. Or I try all this advice and it doesn't work. And it's like, But you're instead that curiosity of like, what is it about this that's making it hard for me to read? Is it that I don't get the information or is it that it's not being presented to me in a way that my brain understands? And so that's what I tried really hard to do is white space, doodles, lots of lists, lots of bullets, and just not a lot of wall of text. And then not intimidating. So like, I really went into it: is how could I write each chapter as if it's a blog post? right? Yeah. It's just a five to 10 minute read. And that way, if it takes you two weeks to get back to the book, you can just pick right back up where you left off.
0: Yeah. I love it. I, the structure of the book is so neuroscience informed. I just love the way you structured it. It's beyond oh, thank excellent. You. So I can't wait for it to come out. How can our listeners of the podcast find you right now? Yeah. So the best way is to go to calmthechaosbook.com.
1: You can scroll down to the bottom and you can download a free chapter of the book, or you could pre-order the book if this is coming out before the launch of the book. And we've got all kinds of good bonuses and goodies for those of you that pre-order the book. And we'll extend that to your listeners no matter when this comes out. So.
0: And let me recommend Dana's Instagram because it is chock full of like little truth bombs that are just super helpful, little techniques. Right. You have a lot of like those videos and a lot of those posts that just give you like that one minute bite of insight that you can use like immediately with your kids. And it's really fun. I feel like, the you know, the colorful here and everything like that also makes it super fun. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, you can find us at at Calm the Chaos Parenting on all
1: social channels, basically. And we do have a podcast, Calm the Chaos Parenting Podcast, as well.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much for being here, Dana. I really appreciate it. This has been awesome. Thank you. I'm here on social media to be descriptive, not prescriptive. I'm here to educate, inform, and hopefully entertain, but never to treat. If listening to this podcast helps you realize that you need therapy, I am all for that, but podcasts aren't therapy. Please reach out to a mental health professional licensed in your jurisdiction. You'll be glad you did. Wish post-traumatic parenting was a talk show, not a podcast. You have a question for me or for my guests? Great news. You can ask those questions by following me on Instagram. My handle is at Dr. Kozlowitz Psychology. It's also in the show notes. I love it when people reach out, DM, or post a question. Who knows? Your question might spark an entire episode. Come join our community. We get it. We're post-traumatic parents, too. Can't wait to hear from you.